You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. When we closed that project, Judy Marsh came in with a shoebox full of checks and bills and pennies and quarters, $20,000 that people had just given to help us make that million dollar project happen. I loved to build things and I still love to build things and that's why I got into a construction business for for 35 years and now I'm doing the same work for fun. This is Dr. Lisa Belial and you are listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 270, Island Time, airing for the first time on Sunday, November 20th, 2016. How do we keep Maine's coast and islands accessible and productive as our state grows in popularity? Today we speak with two individuals who offer unique perspectives on this question. Tim Glidden, president of the Maine Coast Heritage Trust, and Cliff Island conservationist Roger Burley. Thank you for joining us. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. My next guest is Tim Glidden, who serves as the president of the Maine Coast Heritage Trust, a statewide land conservation organization that has helped to conserve over 144,000 acres of Maine's most special places, including more than 300 coastal islands. Prior to joining the organization, Tim led the Land for Maine's Future program from 2001 to 2011. Thanks for coming in today. My pleasure. What I love about what you do is that we all get to experience this. We all get to be part of the coastal heritage that we have. I know that when we go out on our boat from Little John Island, we are very close to the Goslings, for example. And everybody up and down the coast has that same proximity. That must be pretty special for you. It is very special. Um, it's. I'm really glad you you sort of framed it that way because it's such a huge part of our purpose and my own sort of personal uh, goal to make Maine available to people. Um, and the special elements of the coast are just a wonderful, wonderful place to for people to go to, to renew themselves, to discover new things about themselves, to raise their kids, and uh, it's a wonderful place to be. And the Goslings, since you mentioned it, um, were a, you know, a wonderful recent success story for us. So that was a place that had been used by folks in that communi- those communities for probably, well, for generations, really, multiple generations. And, when the o- and the owners had let that happen just, you know, out of the generosity of their hearts. But when they couldn't afford to own the land anymore, they came to us and said, you know, we're going to need to sell this, but we really like it to stay available. And so we took that on and opened it up, and the community outpouring of support was just amazing. People, my favorite story there 
is uh, we worked with a local marina, Paul's Marina, up in Brunswick. And when we closed that project, Judy Marsh came in with a shoebox full of checks and bills and pennies and quarters, $20,000, that people had just given to help us make that million-dollar project happen. And, you know, since the last couple of summers when we've owned it, um, we just keep hearing from people about how appreciative they are. You know, we own these lands. We, we own these lands, but we really hold them in trust. They're lands that are really for Maine and for all the people of Maine. You were born in Texas. <laughs> so that's kind of far away. And not as much water. There is a coastal element to Texas. But. And I was born about as far from the coast of Texas as you could get. I was in North Texas. I was there for all of six months um, before my family, my mom and dad, moved um, up to New England um, outside of Boston, which is where I grew up. Um, but my dad's family was from Maine, from Newcastle. And I, we always had that connection to Maine, so that's really been kind of bred deep in me. And from what I understand, you also went to Colby. Yes, I was at Colby at a time of great change, 70 to 74. And uh, it was a, they were just starting up their environmental sciences um, ma- uh, program for uh, degrees, and I got a, a, a Bachelor of Arts in Environmental Studies there, and that kind of was the first sort of academic or formal training that channeled, I think, what was in my heart and connections from, you know, my connections to the natural world, and so that launched me on a career which has been mostly in Maine ever since, a little bit outside, but I've been bouncing around in Maine, different kind of environmental challenges and issues for, for ever since. I sometimes look back on that and go, oh my God, that was 40-something years ago now. Um, so it's, it's, been a, it's been fun. All of that has been fun. I've taken new challenges as they came and I've always felt that you know, there was a new opportunity around the corner, something exciting to look forward to. So you were going through school um just after the time of the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, if I have this correctly from a timing standpoint. Yeah, pretty much pretty much simultaneously. The, there was early legislation in the late 60s. I think the Clean Water Act itself might have been 1972, so I was still in school. Okay. Um, and all of that, all of that was taking shape at a time, as I said, of you know, of great change, but there was also a sense of of um, optimism. You know, we can really we can really make things better, and it was a wonderful time to be coming into the beginnings of a, of a career, um, and it was a wonderful time to be in the beginnings of a career in Maine because following um, Senator Muskie, Governor Muskie's work on the Clean Water Act, he really got his teeth into that issue while he was governor here in Maine, looking at the Androscoggin and thinking about what had to happen. And it's, there's some, I didn't, just strikes me as we're talking, I'm now working on the banks of the Androscoggin River in Topsom, and where Governor Muskie would have seen blankets 
of stinking foam go by his window. Um, I now see eagles, osprey, I see sturgeon, four and five foot sturgeon jumping out of the water in the spring. It's just, you know, the vibrancy, the fecundity, I mean, you know, just the the life that is in that river now just speaks to what is possible if we put our minds to it. So we know that back when you started, clean air and clean water were fundamental to the environmental movement. And we've moved into a better place with that, but we still have issues. We still, and now we're dealing with issues like climate change. Mm -hmm. And this is something that your organization is very much interested in. We are, we're, Maine Coast Heritage Trust has always been focused on the land itself. Nineteen seventy, ironically, uh, was the year that MCHT started. So there I was starting at Colby, and Maine Coast Heritage Trust was starting um, in Maine at just the same time. We are looking at how how society sort of shapes the land, and how the land or landscapes shape society. And it's our belief that there can be a very healthy relationship. Um, between those ingredients and so we look to conserve land we look to take care of it we call it stewardship and we also look to make sure that people can have a ready connection to that land experience it directly themselves and if they do that sort of restorative quality that a natural experience um, or experience in nature has for people it will lead them to understand how they can um, shape their own lives in ways that have a later impact on the planet. We're doing a whole bunch of more technical things, trying to restore salt marshes or protect lands around salt marshes so that as sea level rises, um, those marshes will have a place to go and the Gulf of Maine will still have those nurseries that the, sea, that the salt marshes are, so that we'll still have productive fisheries and, and all of those kind of things. But at its core, Our work is about the relationship between people and land and trying to maintain a healthy relationship there. We talk about trying to conserve the the character of the main coast, which is that sort of blend between, you know, the granite granite outcroppings and the villages that are nestled into those harbors and how those interact and how people live on that land and make their living from the sea. Um, All of that goes into that special character and if we can conserve the key pieces of land that support that character then the second part of our our efforts our mission of supporting the well-being of those communities can be accomplished you actually have land all up and down the coast so if we were to drive from your um, as far down as one could to as far up as one could, it would take us hours and hours, or even if we boated, really. When I'm very familiar with that trip. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure you are. How, how do you see, um, well, what are the differences between, say, the communities and the lands of Kittery um, and the lands and the communities of Lubeck? Mm. And what are the similarities? And what types of things have you had to, uh, I guess, wrap your collective um, brain around as an organization? That's a great question. 
Well, let me start maybe with the similarities. The, the similarities are, that we find are that despite you know, a w very wide range of economic conditions, um, obviously a lot more people in the South than in the, or in the West than in the East, everybody in those coastal communities really, really cares about their relationship to the ocean, number one, and they also really care about the quality of their communities. That Maine is blessed with a very strong community spirit. You really see it everywhere, um, from our biggest cities to the smallest towns. People care about where they live. They tend to care a lot about their neighbors, their concern for them, even as they have their own quite strong sense of independence um, and don't tell me how to do something. Um, they are looking for ways to make sure their kids' lives in the future are you know, as good as what they have, if not better. And so that, that similar community spirit and commitment to the quality of their communities is a strength that we try to build on. Many people, regardless of their walk in life, really care about the natural lands around them um, and appreciate them. Um, some appreciate them because it's how they make their livelihoods um, and they know that those lands or the waters have to be treated well in order for that livelihood to continue. And uh, it can also be in the form of uh, um, you know, tourism or it can just be in the form of this is a wonderful place to live and raise kids and you know I make their, my living off of some uh, internet based thing. I mean it's the whole gamut. Um, I would say that in terms of differences that the growth in southern Maine over the past 50 years has given folks there a much keener sense of what is at risk um, and so they see uh, that they're you know, they can lose access to the water. They can lose that viewscape. They, pollution can close clam flats. And so they're probably more prepared in southern and western Maine um, to take steps to avoid those problems, whether it be creating a local land trust or ado adopting a zoning ordinance than folks perhaps in Washington County. But it's not because they care less one place or care more in the other. It's just that they're responding to the, these pressures. Um, we are now seeing different kinds of pressures the further east we go. Um, many of the eastern Maine communities now have very high levels of second home ownership in town um, where it's absentee ownerships and the town, although the buildings are there, there's a lot less people there year-round and so the folks who do live there year-round who really care about their communities are looking for ways to strengthen um, the fabric of, of that community. And what we are doing now, which is a little new for us in a 40-year context, we've been doing it for maybe five or ten years pretty thoroughly, is we'll go to communities like that and try to listen. You know, what's going on in your town? What kind of challenges do you face? And then after we sort of develop some rapport, we can say, well, is there something that a, 
you know, that a land conservation organization can do that would help you on those problems. And just as an example, in the town of Millbridge, which is pretty far down east in Washington County, we're now working with a wonderful local group. Um, it's kind of a combination of public nutrition or public health and food security group called the Women's Health Resource Library. And they have done a wonderful job of raising awareness in that town about the need for better eating and better nutrition. But they didn't have the resources to really start a community garden. And so we have partnered with them, bought a piece of land right in downtown Millbridge, and they're going to be putting in community gardens and maybe some exercise, uh, walking tracks, um, and perhaps some other elements. We're still shaping this. But it, it really has shifted how people see land conservation because that connection between nutrition and land conservation, which seems obvious in hindsight but wasn't looking forward, has become a real, um, just a transformative force in that town. And it really, it's going back to what I said earlier, it's really tapping that, that quality that many Maine communities have of looking to better themselves, looking to strengthen their communities. And so in this case, we were lucky to be able to come in and be a, you know, a supportive partner in that effort. What are some of the policy issues that you have found some success with, or maybe some struggles with when it comes to um, protecting the land? Um, we may be somewhat fortunate there. The policy issues in Maine around land conservation um, have been shaped really decades ago in terms of um, there's basic support for local um, nonprofits to make a difference in their own communities. Land trusts, we helped, we've helped to conserve, I mean, to create, I should say. Um, many of the land trusts in Maine support local folks com coming together to do that. There's now 84, 85 land trusts in Maine, and we continue to support them. Um, they, um, as nonprofits, um, have tax exemptions. So there's a policy issue there that um, Maine has consistently supported local charities to do that kind of good work. And there was actually um, a Maine Supreme Court case a couple of years ago that affirmed that, uh, that land held in conservation for the benefit of all was, in fact, tax exempt. Um, Many land trusts in Maine, um, recognizing that even though it is legal, that towns are challenged by that, will make payments in lieu of taxes. Um, so there's, uh, you know, I would say that in some senses the policy environment in Maine is pretty good um, for land conservation. We have been challenged over the last few years by um, the administration's uh, you know, efforts to restrain conservation efforts, or land conservation in particular. But when people, when the public focused on that issue, they overwhelmingly said, no, 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 no. We, you know, we voted for that Land for Maine's Future program. We want those funds to be released. Um, and the legislature has agreed. And, uh, you know, it, that program is slowly 
um, moving along. I mean, I think it's still going to be a challenge for a few more years, but um, I don't have any doubt that the electorate in Maine and and the people of Maine, there's a just a deep abiding support for land conservation and for the environment more broadly. The broader issue, and you alluded to it earlier, that is beyond um, a policy issue that really transcends Maine, transcends the U.S., it's a global issue, is climate change. And all conservation organizations and many beyond the environmental movement are working really, really hard on that one. Uh, You know, what we are doing with that is every time we look at a piece of land that we think might be a good piece of conservation land, we think about, well, what might it look like 100, 200 years from now? Will it still have those conservation qualities that that would be important? Um, And more specifically, one of the things we're doing right now is we've analyzed wetlands up and down the coast, um, salt marshes, to see, as I think I mentioned a few minutes ago, if sea, when sea level rises, not if, it's happening, when sea level rises, will those marshes have a place to migrate to so that they can reestablish themselves and they can fulfill their ecological function of you know nurseries for small fish, for lobsters, for all sorts of the base of the food web that then supports everything that happens out in the bays along the coast and in the Gulf of Maine itself. So the I would say the big overarching policy challenge has got to be seen as climate change. So how so I'm thinking about what that must be like to be working forward a hundred years. <laughs> Your I guess there's modeling that you can use to understand where the buffer zones are currently and what needs to be conserved so that in a hundred years this this is all still the way that it needs to be? There are models, um, and they anything that's involved in predicting the future, whether or not it's the weather next week or you know the climate 100 or more years from now, has to be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt. Um, I think there are a number of things that are very, very clear. Um, sea level is rising. Um, temperatures are going up in Maine. Um, we are now looking at a situation where in the next hundred years, Maine is going to be one of the most appealing and attractive places to live on the East Coast. Um, there was some analysis released a little earlier this year that indicated that uh, the major cities along the eastern seaboard, many of them would be seeing um, more than a hundred days per year with temperatures over 95 or 100 degrees and Maine would not be seeing anything close to that. So when you look ahead like that, you sort of go, okay, there's going to be a lot of people who want to live in Maine. And in a lot of ways, that could be a really good thing. Uh, Maine's population has been very flat. Um, So new opportunities, new skills coming in, new resources could be really good for Maine. But are we ready to handle that? So we see and I would say this is probably true of most people in the land conservation world, we see ourselves as protecting opportunities um, and protecting options for the future. So if we conserve lands that are 
productive lands, um, farmlands, or lands that give access to the coast so people can always get to the water either for fun or to make their livelihoods, we're protecting the opportunities for folks to have the same quality of life or maybe even better um, in the future as they have today. So if and when a lot of new folks do move into Maine, the coast is always going to be a really appealing place to live. Um, we will have we will have protected and conserved the places that really shape the character of that coast while at the same time leaving places for folks to, to move in and build their homes and make their livings um, and uh, you know and have a full and complete life. It does seem like an interesting challenge because I think about well I think about just Popham Beach and the the shifting sands and the way that the character of that coastline has evolved even since I've lived in Maine and since I went to school in, um, and then I think about Yarmouth which is needed to dredge mm-hmm. the Royal River and yeah. how we used to be able to go under the Cousins Island Bridge and now there's a very small channel and we don't even really recommend that you do that. So these shifting sands are not even a hundred years out. You know, the shifting coastline and the rising tides, it's happening right now. How do you work with the fact that what is currently coastline may not be exactly in the same place? That's, I mean, you put your finger right on it. That really is what goes to the need to protect options. We can't with any degree of confidence, you know, predict precisely where, you know, how a river is going to cut its channel to get to the sea a hundred years from now. You can't even really predict it in some cases ten years from now. So you have to be thinking about, well, maybe we need two or three different options for that. Um, If we are um, building new bridges, or in, uh, in the case that we're a little bit more familiar with, thinking about just how water moves under roads, um, you don't want to be building for today's storms, um, the volume of water going through today. You need to be building for the possibility and increasingly the likelihood that the amount of water moving through our streams and rivers could be much, much higher as precipitation goes up. So we're now in many cases sizing the culverts, you know, the pipes that carry the water under the roads, much, much higher and designing them in ways which allow the fish to move back and forth underneath them in way this is stuff that we never really used to think about. So you're having to it's kind of like contingency planning. You're having to think about, well, what if? And then if the likelihood of that what if seems sufficiently high, then you know maybe you may, may need to build in a little redundancy or a little, few other options into this planning. Um, Popham is a tough one. You know, Popham Beach, when I first came to Maine, was a gorgeous, wide expanse of beautiful sand, even at high tide. Uh, and if you go there now, um, at low tide, there's lots of beach, but at high tide, there's not a lot of beach. Now. 10 years from now, 50 years from now, it could be very different. That that system is constantly changing and moving. But as sea level rises, it's very clear that you know those beaches, um, if they are pinned in by something else, those beaches will be gone. So where else might we go? How else will we get to the water? What other properties would we want to protect? That's the kind of thing that Maine Coast Heritage is looking at all the time, thinking about where that might, where those 
alternatives will be. You've been working on this for a little while now, and um, you still have a you still have a youth and vitality to you. So I suspect <laughs> you're going to be out doing this for a you're while kind yet. To say that. <laughs> I mean, you seem you seem energized by the job that you have, and not everybody has that good fortune that they they love what they're doing. Is there any one thing that you would like to try to see happen before mm. you finally hang it up in a few decades? Um, wow, a big question. Well, there's no one thing that I would want to see happen. I would want to I would want to have done everything that I can to be sure that the same opportunities that I had to have that restorative relationship with the natural world that those opportunities are available to as many people, especially as many younger people, um, as possible in Maine, because I think that experience is a pr- is a quite an important ingredient in what makes Maine a special place and what makes um, Maine's culture a special place. There's you look across the whole spectrum of human activity in Maine, work art, food, um, you know, play, all those things, so many of them are grounded in some aspect of the natural world. And I just want to make sure that that those unique special attributes of Maine, that there's enough of those still here so that future generations are inspired in the same way that I've been. Um, and that, uh, you know, I have, I've been blessed, and I hope to pass that blessing forward. We will put information about the Maine Coast Heritage Trust on the uh, Love Maine Radio show notes page. We've been speaking with Tim Glidden, who serves as the president of the Maine Coast Heritage Trust, and who also led the Land for Maine's Future program from 2000 to 2011. Thank you for all the work that you're doing, and uh, you've inspired me to want to go spend more time on the coast. It doesn't take much to inspire me to do that, but, <laughs> but you've, you've done it, so I appreciate it. Well, Thank thanks very much, Lisa. It's been a real pleasure to be with you, and I appreciate the invitation. And I hope everybody takes advantage of the main coast. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch Lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Main Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Ruth Hamill, Joanne Perrin, Alan Bunker, and Jean Jack. For complete show details, please visit our website, 
artcollectormaine.com. Having grown up in Maine and very close to the island where I now live, Little John Island, I've been a long fan of islands. Although my island is connected by a bridge and a causeway, uh, the individual that I have here with me today is also a big fan of islands, and his island is not connected by any bridge or any causeway. This is Roger Burley, who is a longtime resident of Cliff Island. He has been heavily involved in conservation and community nonprofits over the past few decades, including the Maine Islands Coalition and the Maine Conservation Voters. He also managed a construction business on Cliff Island until 2005, and he also happens to be a graduate of my alma mater, Bowdoin College. Thanks so much for coming in. Oh, very, very pleased to be here, Lisa. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So the reason that we became interested in you is we were actually boating near your island, and I believe we saw a boat that belongs to you, which was moored off of the island that you mm -hmm. live on. And then we started to learn more about your boat, and we started to learn more about you, and you have a very interesting story. You have a long, long history with Cliff Island. I do. Um, it started when I was six months old. Um, like my dad before me, January baby, uh, we came here when each of us were six months old. And um, the I can still hear, I don't know when you first start remembering things, but uh, about five years old, I can still remember the, uh, the bellboy of Hope Island and the seagulls uh, that I first heard when we'd arrive on the 1st of August for our month on Cliff Island. And um, it sticks in my mind today, and it's really uh, affected me and infected me. And, and so as my life uh, in Massachusetts for 11 months of the year um, revolved around school and family and that community, um, I always felt that my paradise was Cliff Island. And um, so I never have gone a year without being on Cliff Island for at least a month. And so um, I went to Bowdoin probably because of that attraction and uh, everything in me, all, all the molecules in me uh, led in this direction. And so um, after um, getting a graduate degree in Boston, um, I decided to spend one last summer on Cliff Island before I went to work in some horrible corporation, and uh, lo and behold, I'm still here. So that was uh, about 48 years ago, and um, I have no regrets whatsoever uh, about that. And I have smaller regrets, but, but boy, the big one, uh, it, it, it's all good. And this is a wonderful place to live, and I've lived through um, good economic times and, and really down economic times and, and all kinds of um, statewide and citywide and island-wide controversies. And, and uh, it's all been a wonderful challenge to, be a, to make something of whatever was going on. Do you know what drew your family to Cliff Island in I the do. first place? I do. I easily do. My paternal grandparents were Norwegian, and my grandfather um, was an immigrant. In the 1890s, uh, he and my grandmother moved here. He was a highly educated engineer in Norway, and Norway was a desperately poor country at that time, um, having agriculture and really not much industry beyond fishing. And uh, this is long before oil was discovered in the North Sea. And so he and his eight brothers all emigrated to other countries, and he um, emigrated to the U.S., and went to work in New York City, eventually became involved with the st structural engineering of 
all the largest buildings in the world, um, including the, the uh, Woolworth Building and, and the Chrysler Building and, and numerous others. And uh, after a while, he was temporarily stationed in Washington, D.C. to work on the Supreme Court Building. And while he was down there, uh, the summertime came, and as an asthmatic, uh, he was miserable. And so he asked around, doesn't anyone know any place I can go that's more like Norway? And one of the people he talked to happened to summer on Cliff Island. And he also turned out to be a business partner um, shortly uh, on in his life. And so in 19, that was 1904 or so, and uh, 1905, we spent our first few weeks on Cliff Island, and my father being just a baby. And um, so that hit the, hit the right note for him and, and my grandmother. And so we still own that property that we bought in 1929 and um, been considered ourselves Cliff Islanders ever since. But we were summer people until uh, about 1968 or 69 when I started living on Cliff Island. And um, a very different life than I ever expected to live. And I'm, you can only really do one thing at a time um, in the main and small m. And um, so, I say I have no regrets about being here, and I'll do whatever I can for the state of Maine, for my island, uh, for the environment. Uh, that is where I really learned that, uh, much more so than growing up in a, in a somewhat well-to-do suburb of Boston, that, that in a tiny place like an island, a rock surrounded by water, whatever anyone does, is far more measurable than anywhere else. And so when someone does something good or something bad, something doesn't get done, something should be, get, should be done, um, it's a whole lot easier to get one's head around it and uh, see what one should really do about it. When I was doing a story about the Sunbeam, we went up to Idaho and mm -hmm. we were talking to some of the people who live there year round and the joke was that um, your neighbors always knew when you went out to the outhouse, and sometimes that was yep. a problem. But then the other side of it is they always knew when you didn't come back. Right. So that was a good thing. That's that's a great story. I've yeah. heard that one before. Yeah, I'm sure it's very it's very no, not common. Not that specific one, but but the same idea. But you know. so that is so it is something that's um, maybe unique in this day and age that people know their neighbors so well, and the interconnection is so tight. Uh, I mean, there is an ecology that happens also on the mainland, but I think I'm just always struck by, you go to an island, whatever trash you bring out, you, you have to bring back again with you. In, indeed, or, or you get trashed. Yes. And um, one way I put the same concept is that we all get our mail from the same little tiny post office, and um, it's best to go in and get it no matter who's there, um, because it, it, it could bring to the surface um, something good or something bad um, that can be addressed um, or start to be addressed at that moment. Um, so uh, again, um, there's no way that everyone's going to love who you are. Um, and, uh, and in this political environment, I should say that hopefully not everyone's going to dislike or hate you, but um, but you're part of a community, a diverse community. It's a very diverse community. The, the, um, the fishermen were someone that my dad always gravitated to, and I used to love it when they would come over. We 
I knew we were summer people, and I knew that the fishermen were were lived a different kind of life. And I was fascinated when they'd come by and, and uh, knock down some rum together and, and talk about um, what was going on uh, out in the water and on the island. And, and uh, I, I just, it was romantic to me. And I integrated that and, and somehow, and I never thought I'd wanted to come here and be a fisherman. My father really did, a very educated man. Um, and accomplished in many ways. He was on the faculty at MIT, um, and uh, yet he, what I, the message I got from him, because he died when I was 17, and at that point in time, of course, father and son aren't exactly in sync, um, but I always thought that he wanted to um, move to Maine and become either a tugboat captain or a fisherman. And it never happened. He died. And I don't know how sincere that was or if it was just his, his romance. Um, and, uh, but somehow I took it more seriously. And so I've done lobstering. I've fished. I've worked with my hands. And w one thing we did um, more on Cliff Island than we did in Massachusetts was to build things together. He was an engineer. I was uneducated in that area. Um, I stopped taking math as soon as I could. Um, but I loved to build things, and I still love to build things. And that's why I got into a construction business for that I had for 35 years. And now I'm doing the same work for fun. I'm, I'm building things for my son and my daughter and my grandson. Um, and I learned all that on Cliff Island. A lot of it from him and a lot of it from uh, working with the Cliff Islanders, uh, one of whom I feel I am. Sincerely, am. Yeah. You told me that uh, when you finished your graduate degree, your MBA, that your mother was kind of asking, "So, when are you going to get? When are you going to get a quote real job?" Yeah. And one of the jobs that you took on was becoming a sternman for a lobster boat on Cliff Island. Correct, and um, it, it was a little bit of a harsh reality for me, but I really found myself bending to it. And, um, but I, I, I never had the um, inclination to become a full-time fisherman. I, again, was really drawn to the community and to learning what needed to be done and from what I heard from other people and from what I discerned myself. And so building things both physically and in a community sense, organizationally, um, it it just all seemed to fit, and and a little later on, um, maybe maybe eight or ten years, um, when I was married and my former wife felt constricted on the island and and with our two little kids, and so she she convinced me to move our family off the island full time. We'd lived there for a long time as a family, full time. Um, um, we bought a house in, in, in Cumberland, and uh, I proceeded to continue to go out to Cliff Island um, five, six days a week. Always spent two or three nights out there, and I remember her saying that her mother asked her, my mother-in-law asked her, well, aren't you worried about him being out there alone without you um, so many nights and stuff? And, and she said, yes, actually I am. I think you'll probably start a whole bunch more nonprofits, and that's not a good thing. <laughs> so that was a, a telling story, and it's probably been borne out. Um, but I'm 
my mother was an ardent conservationist in her quiet way. My father, um, in his um, off time from work, was a community activist, very involved in, in uh, the selectman manager form of government in our town in Massachusetts, and, and, uh, and was also a fundraiser. And I, when I was 12, 10, I said, well, those are, those are for sure things that I will never do in my life because it just doesn't look like any kind of fun. And guess what? <laughs> I am one of the very few people that I've ever met who actually loves to, to raise money to do fundraising. And uh, I've done it for multiple organizations, I'm still doing it, and will probably be doing it until I'm either told not to do it anymore or can't do it anymore uh, effectively. Um, but the only um, organizations I will raise money for or, or enterprises uh, are those that I'm totally passionate about. And when I finish asking someone for $1,000 or a $1 million, um, and it's over, and they say yes or no, or maybe some part of that, um, they'd say, but I gotta tell you, your passion is incredible, and it's really uh, gonna affect what I decide to give um, to your uh, request. And I never thought about myself as a passionate person whatsoever. Um, um, but it, I, I'll take the testimony of, of, of others. Um, and I will say this, that it, it's changed me to a great extent in that I was very introverted growing up. And when I became involved, um, not in my Cliff Island life, but eventually when I became involved um, with uh, Wayne Fleet school and I was asked to chair a $8.5 million campaign and, and I fell right to it um, that I found myself becoming an extrovert and I had gained confidence in my ability to get out in the world and, and uh, do something that really not many other people want to do and I succeeded at it to a great extent and it, it changed me and I'm, I'm grateful for that and, and I don't know that might have happened eventually, no matter where I went and what I did, but it happened here, and, and I'm grateful uh, for that. So you actually went through kind of a tough time at, at one point with your, with your actual building company. Didn't you have, didn't you have your um, establishment burned to the ground? Yes, it, it did, in 1995. It burned to the ground. Uh, it was a human error, um, but it doesn't matter. Once it's burnt, um, it's, it's gone. And so um, I had been in my business at that time for 25, six years. And it was a moment that caused me to reassess um, um, what I really wanted to do. And I had been already considering what was next in my life um, and um, running a company of 15 to 20 people and being responsible for them year-round um, it, it was weighing on me I must say and uh, it, it was um, it was a setback but it probably uh, had as many pluses to, to negatives um, the event um, I'm still planning to <laughs> rebuild that building 20 years later, 21 years later, um, much smaller because I, I had the dream facility that any person who uh, loved tools and, and, and equipment um, and having a, 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 an infrastructure 
within which to be effective um, would, would have loved to have had. And the building was about 80% complete. And um, um, I'm paying less taxes because I don't have that building. But I, I wish I had it still. Uh, and uh, I don't. So that's life. And you've got to move on. And so we went, I went through a, a really tough time. Um, and um, it really was the beginning of winding down my business, but not my activity in the community. Um, all, all my customers were friends, all my employees were friends and communi fellow community members. And so I spent 10 years trying to create a soft landing for, 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 for my customers and for my employees and for myself. And uh, so I, I was morphing in um, to putting the same sort of energy that I built up on Cliff Island, um, energized myself with, um, to work on the mainland. And that's when I became uh, involved at, at Waynefleet, and that led to other organizations um, that um, asked me to be part of their work. And um, I, <laughs> one of my frustrations, and this is somewhat self-serving, is that I hate or early on hated to be at a poorly run meeting or a badly run meeting and I really went to my first meetings ever as a participant on Cliff Island and if someone there was an agenda and someone came in and started rambling off and, and, and the meeting just, just, just took off in another direction and was just not going anywhere I found my frustration building up a lot and um, so when I had a chance to run my first meetings in the, probably the 1970s, I was still wet behind the ears to a great extent, an extremely great extent. Um, I took what I had learned uh, uh, from schooling and, and, um, uh, and watching my father, I guess, and my mother said, meetings need to be run better. And so uh, somehow I've been asked to run to chair or be president of every organization I've been on, and um, and I, and I feel I've run really really good meetings. I've been told that a lot, um, and um, I'm sure I've frustrated a whole lot of people in that. But I'm I'm still doing that, and um, um, so um, again, I'm sorry I'm rambling away, but um, just. Cutting to the chase and, and seeing what needs to be done is where I keep I keep wanting to go, and um, so I hope that gets closer to what you were asking. Well, it is interesting because what you're describing, um, being in meetings with people of different um, ways of processing information, mm -hmm. you know, different educational backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, um, and all of this this building that you describe is. It requires a coming together and, and a, a consensus. A absolutely, that, that is not that is not easy. Whether you're on Cliff Island doing it as an individual with within the Cliff Island community, or whether you're doing it in a larger way with some of these other organizations, um, and I just want to mention that you've been on 
in addition to the Maine Islands Coalition and the Maine Conservation Voters, um, you've also been part of Sustainable Cliff Island, the Cliff Island Corporation for Athletics Conservation and Education, Friends of Fort Gorgeous, um, Oceanside Conservation Trust of Casco Bay, Southern Maine Conservation Collaborative, Portland Trails, and also the Portland Land Bank Commission. So you know what you're talking about when you say, you know, I, I've been out there, I've been raising money, I've been helping build things. You've had a lot of varied experience. I have. and and. It was all from just basically deciding from within myself what needs to be done. And uh, that the fact that enough other people in each of those instances, each of those organizations, um, were willing to, to go forward with me uh, to one extent or another, um, as those, those were their choices. Those were, were, were their basic um, motives and inclinations. And so I, I, I do believe it goes back to, to the building um, metaphor that I was talking about. Um, and an ability, I guess, I gained um, to, to get motion, to get her done. That's a main saying, get her done. Uh, if something needs to happen, um, go get it done, get her done. And one of the things I learned early on, just came back to me this moment, um, was that the word they, which I began to hear, or I'm sure I heard it all my life, but young life, but uh, on Cliff Island, uh, there were people who would say, well, they ought to do this, or they ought to do that. And I said, wait a minute, who's they? And quickly I went to, there is no they, it's we. And, and there's no one else but we. And um, so um, I guess I became rather adamant about that. And, and I would get rather verbal about that at times, but then I decided that instead of badgering someone else uh, about having such a passive and victim sort of uh, complex that I would just try to do something rather than than arguing with them. Let's let's well let's just do it and 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 get her done. And so I think that's that's gone through uh, my experience with all those organizations. And I think the the I can't say there have been many difficulties in in, in going uh, through the. The course of life that I have in, in, in my organizational life, um, raising money perhaps is the easiest part. Um, building consensus, as you mentioned a moment ago, um, uh, I, I'm not an arm twister um, at all. I, I have certainly put pressure on many people for for different uh, in different ways to accomplish what I felt was was the consensus need. Um, um, but but the the asking of the money was the easy part, and the holding people together to 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 move a consensus forward, uh, get an agreement that wasn't going to splinter the organization. And I think perhaps, and again, this may sound self-serving, but um, that I did get seen as someone who could bring the money in, if you will. Um, and, and many times, most times in a very small way, um, say, well, wait a minute, um, this guy's showing us um, 
that there are that this can get done and that, that the money is not so much of an obstacle as we thought um, so it, it removes roadblocks in, in people's minds that that if I'm seen as a can-do person someone some people call me a rainmaker I think that's a crazy description but um, if if it comes from people who are afraid of trying to raise money or feeling like it's hopeless if we can't get the money and and I'm out there um, I mean I've failed a great amount of time in, in asking for money but if if people say yes immediately when you ask them for $500 or $5,000 or $50,000 then you know one thing you didn't ask them for enough and so um, I'm a Republican um, at least in name and um, uh, you mentioned the main conservation voters. I happen to be president of that organization. And it is what it sounds like. We, we work with uh, voters and legislators to educate them on, on conservation and environmental needs for the state of Maine. And, um, and so um, I, think, I think I'm president of this organization because I'm a, they asked me to be because I'm a Republican. And, and in my discussions with, with naysayers about Republicans in the state of Maine, I remind them that 40-some years ago, all the good environmental and conservation laws in Maine were passed by Republicans, not Democrats. And so one of the contentious uh, discussions that we have at our, at our board meetings and, and other gatherings is that we're not a Democrat organization. We're a Maine organization. We're an environmental organization. And let's get the party tags um, removed from this. Well, it's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. And, well, well uh, thank you, Lisa. It's, uh, and, uh, it's been interesting to hear about the experiences that you've had over the past mm, few decades, anyway, yeah. trying to make things change on Cliff Island or help be a part of important things on Cliff Island and also around the state of Maine. Um, I hope people will take the time to learn more about the Maine conservation voters. We've been speaking with Roger Burley, who is a longtime resident of Cliff Island, who has been heavily involved in conservation and community nonprofits over the past few decades, and who also managed a construction business on Cliff Island until 2005. Thanks so much for coming in. You're welcome. It's a delight to be here with you and, and to talk about these things. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 270, Island Time. Our guests have included Tim Glidden and Roger Burley. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful1 on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Island Time show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, the rooms by Harding Lee Smith, 
Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.